Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Brian Birnbaum. Brian is the co-founder and executive editor at Dead Rabbits Books and the author of Emerald City, a novel. He grew up 30 minutes west of Camden Yards in Baltimore, where at four years old, he cried because the Yankees were losing. An MFA graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, his work has been published or is forthcoming in the Smart Set, Ecologist, Atticus Review, Slam Magazine, Political Animal, Lumina, and more. Brian is a child of deaf adults, CODA, and works in development for the family sign language interpreting business. He lives in Harlem with the writer M.K. Rainey and their dog. Brian, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Really, uh, it's really great. Thanks for having me. Very excited to talk to you. Not only are you an author, but you're also part of a publishing company. Would you describe it as a publishing company? Yeah, okay. 100%. My first question usually is, where are you in the world? But I know from your bio that you're based in Harlem. Are you in New York City at the moment? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in our apartment in Harlem. Nice. Uh, we, live, we live on 147, so like Northwest Harlem, called Sugar Hill. Nice. And how does being in New York affect you? Would you say that it behooves you, it benefits you to be actually in New York City? I know a lot of the writers we talk to are kind of all over the place, but I would like to think that sometimes being in New York has benefits. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think it definitely did. It's different for everyone. I think if you're a natural born, so to speak, like hustler, I think you can kind of live anywhere and get your work out there. And like, if you're like a DIY person, I'm kind of not good for anything but writing. (laughs) And so like, you know, with Dead Rabbits, that's why I I kind of more handle like the submissions process, because that's that's really my forte is like the work itself, you know. So being in New York, allowed me to meet a lot of people and get my work out there in ways that I probably wouldn't have been able to so much by myself. But, you know, again, I, I do want to stress that I think you can be anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, for me, it's helped. Emerald City, a novel launched, I believe, on September 6th. Tell us, what are you working on right now? Are you still promoting that book? Do you have something kind of lined up? Uh, yeah, it came out on September 15th. And uh, I mean, I know, I know what I want to write next, but it's funny, like I started drafting some stuff for it like one or two years ago, but I haven't really gone back to it since. But uh, I've been working on a short story, a couple of short stories, but I kind of just got finished doing a book tour. And I might, I might, I'll probably do another one uh, in the spring and then probably a, a couple more throughout the, the first year that it's out. But yeah, it's kind of like, uh, a, I'm sort of in purgatory in the sense of I'm pretty exhausted from finishing this book and doing the tour and so I don't know. I'm kind of just chipping away at these short stories and seeing what I can what I can put together at this point. <laughs> kind of like in a hangover sort of state. And where does this book particularly fit in the greater pie of the works that you guys are working on at Dead Rabbits? Was this the pilot book? Are there other books? Give us kind of a high-level overview of where you guys are at, what you're working on. Yeah, this was the first book. We wanted to put out my book first so we could figure out the process really, you know, to put it pretty bluntly to make sure that we got everything right in case we didn't the first time from here on out. 
and it ended up going pretty smoothly. There are no real glaring errors, uh, though we have learned a lot in terms of what works better and what works not so not not as well. But yeah, so the second book we have coming out is David Hollander's. He was our thesis advisor at Sarah Lawrence. He put out a book way back in like 2001 called LIE that was pretty big and hasn't published anything since. So we're pretty excited to put out his second novel. And it's it's pretty amazing. We have a collection of essays that uh, Annie Krabenschmidt is working on. She's she's a young young writer writing writing a, a bunch of essays basically about um, her sexuality and coming out and all that stuff. And we are working on a children's book, and we're in talks with a couple more people for some books coming up. So, yeah, a lot more work ahead. So we're pretty excited about that. Is there a cohesive theme or aesthetic that you look for that makes up the brand that is Dead Rabbits? Yeah, the the short answer is literary fiction and nonfiction. Although, you know, as I just said, we're working on a children's book, so it's definitely not just that. I mean, to be honest, literary fiction and nonfiction, I think, is kind of a byword for, like, in a way, we're looking for things that are just sort of ambitious and. Uh, risk-taking, and stuff that um, is just really high quality that doesn't tend to get picked up by bigger presses anymore for a lot of reasons. And, you know, that, that still has a lot of vagueness to it, but um, I think people know what I'm talking about when I say that. And as far as starting Dead Rabbits, especially putting your own work in there, is there a reason why you wouldn't just do the traditional publishing, going to a big publishing house, or self-publishing through Amazon Kindle Direct? Is there a reason why you chose that alternative option, creating your own publishing house, so to speak? And what are the benefits and pros and cons? I think self-publishing kind of comes back to the whole, I guess, well, I'll, I'll put it in context to what my, my arc was. An earlier draft of the novel got me an agent at the writer's house. So I was really excited. Uh, you know, that's a big time agency. They represent people like uh, Rachel Kushner, Jonathan Franzen. And so I was really excited. And so I sat down with the agent. We had lunch and we talked about what he thought the book needed work on before we started submitting it to editors and stuff like that. And so I started working on it. And um, about four, five something months later, right around my birthday, actually, <laughs> it kind of sucked. I got an email saying that he was leaving the industry. And, you know, he said he was going to pass me along to another agent, but he never really followed through on that. And, you know, that kind of took me back to square one. And I didn't submit to other agents for a while. I made sure I was done with the revisions. I prefer another year or so before I started submitting. And then, and then another year after that, I was kind of still just in the submission process. You know, a few agents had my full manuscript and were thinking about it. But, you know, I was, I was starting to get a little uh, disenchanted, I guess, with the whole process. And I had considered self-publishing, but again, that kind of brings back the whole um, hustle DIY sort of mentality that I don't really have. I, I, I really love to write, but I'm, you know, the self-promotion part is very, uh, I needed help, to be honest. I did. I needed some guidance and direction, and I didn't think that self-publishing was going to do that for me, even though I got, I got close to the idea of doing it. And so one day, uh, I was talking to my friend John, you know, the, our third partner in Dead Rabbits. He was my roommate in Seattle all those years ago, which is where Emerald City is set. And he just said, you know, why don't we just start our own publishing company and start with your book? And I was like, that sounds like a really good idea. That'd be really fun. And it kind of just went from there. 
Walk me through the first steps you took when you decided, okay, let's start our own publishing company. What do you have to do? Do you have to start an LLC? Where do you even begin to kind of prioritize and start thinking through the actual publishing and all that? Well, that's kind of a lot where John came in. Um, you know, he's really business savvy. He worked at Amazon for like 10 years. And basically, he wrote a business plan. And then as soon as Katie read the business plan, she was like, okay, I'm on board. So yeah, I mean, filing for an LLC is not really that difficult. Um, it's just, you can look it up, do the paperwork, you know, you got to choose exactly where you want to incorporate your, your company and all that stuff. A lot of it is just time. It's time and energy. <laughs> the best way I can put it. But other, other than, you know, the just kind of like white paper business, there was a lot of just putting, a lot of it was uh, putting together our website and getting people right. to know that we were taking a reading series that is pretty well known, which is, you know, the Dead Rabbits reading series here in New York and spinning it off into a, a publishing company and getting the buzz going. And uh, that was just a lot of using contacts we had and not not just for getting them aware, but also for people to contribute art to the website, content. And then after making the website, it was uh, a lot of it was just focused on the, the process of creating a book. You know, we the first thing was who's going to do the editing. We found some editors to work on my novel, and then we said, okay, who's going to do the book design? And uh, we worked with Olivia Croom, who uh, worked at uh, Riverhead and does freelancing for other big presses and indie presses. And we kind of just learned as we went, um, and that's what we started with my book to make sure if anything went wrong, it would go wrong for me. <laughs> but fortunately, nothing really did. Before we get into your book, I would love to discuss the process for that. There's probably writers right now listening to this thinking, this is a publishing company. How do we submit our work? How do we get involved? Well, yeah, you. if you want to submit to us, basically you just go to deadrabbitsbooks.com and uh, click the submissions page, read the instructions, and it's all there for you. So we normally frame our episodes around different themes. You know, we talk to comic book writers and we talk to TV writers. In this case, I would love to talk writing with you, talking about writing a book, especially from the perspective of someone who has their own publishing company. So are you cool to kind of school us on the process? We can talk about Emerald City and kind of walk through the steps. Yeah, sounds good. Before we do, real quick, how did you get to this point? Because obviously, you know, you're working on the book now, you have the publishing company. But did you always want to be a writer? And how did you kind of land here? Yeah, I would say the I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, it became the sole focus around the time I was graduating college. John was my, my roommate in Seattle. He was kind of like, what are you going to do with your life after college? I was like, I don't know. And he's like, why don't you move out here and figure it out? I was like, all right. <laughs> so I did that, got a bunch of odd jobs, You know, ended up working as a graveyard shift concierge at some fancy apartment building that, that's in my novel, Aspira. And that's where I live. That's the first place that John and I lived at. Uh, I basically lived on a mattress in the corner of his apartment <laughs> for the first eight or nine months before we got a place in Capitol Hill. And I had my own room. <laughs> and I just wrote every day. At first, it was just a lot of journaling. Like, I think I kind of had a purpose. But, you know, like in the back of my mind, it was like, okay, maybe I can turn in, turn this into some sort of nonfiction, creative, memoirish sort of thing. But really, I was just sitting down and writing and just like working on my craft every day. And then after a couple of years, after the first year, then I started working on the novel. And I, I finished it pretty quick. I worked on it for like a year. And I submitted it to a couple of places. And basically, the answer was, you know, you're a good writer, but this really isn't it. I think I was trying to I don't know. Uh, it, it was a very complicated book. And 
I'm not surprised that it was. I think I was trying to outdo a lot of my heroes rather than maybe hew closer to my own voice, if that makes sense. And then that novel was called The Material, and it was about this uh, sort of MacGuffin substance, which kind of can parallel, I guess, maybe like the video, the entertainment in Infinite Jest. So after I heard that, I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start writing something else. And around that time, my mom suggested that I go get an MFA. And me being me, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. But then a month later, I was like, yeah, that actually sounds like a pretty good idea. So I started applying and I got into Sarah Lawrence. So I moved back to the East Coast. I stayed with my parents for a few months before I moved up to Yonkers, where Sarah Lawrence is. And I basically babysat a bunch, saved up all this money for grad school. because I was fortunate enough to live with my parents in a neighborhood that was pretty, you know, pretty well to do. And so parents paid a lot for me to watch their kids and which was a fun job. But yeah, so, and, and, and I did a little bit of that in grad school too. But yeah, so I got to Sarah Lawrence. That's where I met David Hollander. He was kind of the one who convinced me to go to Sarah Lawrence. We really just vibe. And I kept working on the same novel. I've written short stories and I wrote some for workshops in Sarah Lawrence, but I've never really, it's never really been my main thing. Um, you know, even, even right now, I'm kind of working on these short stories because there are a couple ideas I just want to put down on paper. I don't know what they're going to be, but I've always just liked the novel. And, uh, yeah, I just, at Sarah Lawrence, something started clicking, you know, there was a chapter I wrote for, for Emerald city that, that I finally got feedback on that was like, yeah, this is it. Like you're onto something. And it kind of snowballed from there. And that's, I, I just kept going. And even through graduation, I started working for my dad because although it's not necessarily my passion, my dad's business, it like, I know the business, you know, I'm a, my parents are deaf. I know interpreting. And I do a good job at it. So I thought it was the best thing for me to basically be able to make a living and, and keep on writing. And that's essentially where I got to the point of getting the agent. And, and that kind of like connects the dots from, from there to publishing with the Dead Rabbits. Are you okay with me reading the description of Emerald City? Yeah, I, I can't say no to that. I'm going to do my best. Set in Seattle, Emerald City follows Benison Berenreich, the hearing son of deaf royalty. His father, CEO of a multi-million dollar deaf access agency, has bribed Marietta College officials for Benison's spot on their powerhouse basketball team, where he struggles to prove himself and compensate for his father's sins. Julia Paolantonio has recently lost her father to a drug relapse. Her mother ships her off to live with her estranged granddad, Johnny Rossiti, during the summer before her freshman year at Marietta. Johnny offers her a deal. Bring him Peter Fosch, tormented college dropout and the best drug runner west of the Cascades and he'll give Julia's freshly widowed mother a board seat on his mobbed-up securities firm. When Benison's father is arrested for defrauding government subsidies for the deaf, the Berenreichs are left vulnerable to his company's ruthless backers, namely Johnny Rossiti, forcing Julia and Peter to navigate the minefield left in the aftermath. And I have some quotes here, too, which I'll also read. Though this nimble and virtuosic novel tracks everything from the long shadow of addiction to the unique pressures of college athletics, Emerald City is, at its heart, an intensely moving story about family. That's from Gabe Habash, author of Stephen, Florida, from Coffeehouse Press. And I have another quote. A fiercely smart, intricately structured, riveting debut novel. It's a little unfair that Brian Birnbaum should possess so many gifts. Fortunately, Emerald City is our prize, not his. David Hollander, author of Lie by Ballantine Books and Anthropica, forthcoming from Dead Rabbits Books. So yeah, Brian, how does it feel to kind of finally get it out there and also see such uh, positive reviews? The positive reviews are, they feel really nice. And having the book out there, 
I kind of expected how I feel, which is, you know, honestly, not that much right now. It's always been about the process for me. You know, um, I wouldn't do this if I was looking for some sort of, I don't know, to end up on Oprah's. <laughs> not that like, you know, it, it's bad to chase sort like dreams or anything like that. You know, I think, I think people should, they should, uh, do whatever they want, you know, if, if they think it's going to make them happy. I, I guess for me personally, I think it's crazy to be a writer and uh, expect something back from it, if that makes sense, in a, in a sort of like material, financial, tangible, glorifying sense, you know. But somewhat paradoxically, I guess the best part of this has been getting like blurbs like that from Gabe Habash and uh, the one on front, especially from Sergio de la Pablo, who's an absolute hero of mine, just because it makes me feel like not even more than my hard work paying off and, you know, sort of, you know, verifying the idea that maybe, maybe I am onto something. It just, it makes me feel like we're all a part of something that means something to other people. Like, even though we all write in different styles and we come at it from different angles and we come from different backgrounds, we're all speaking to sort of the same thing about the human condition. And that's kind of what mattered to me most. So the book's out, people can buy it, they can review it. It's up for some awards and, you know, it'd be great if I won some or was honorably mentioned in some. And, you know, it'd be great if people bought the book. But the happiest moments were when some of my peers and heroes sort of uh, felt like we were speaking the same language, I guess. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. Moving into process, I would love to start from the inception and work our way through the process of publishing the book. As far as the inception of the idea, where did this come from? I know that part of it is inspired by your own life. How did you blend the reality with the fiction? It started with the video relay service fraud. My dad has a friend who actually recently just got out of prison. I think he did most of his 10-year sentence for video relay service fraud. Basically, if you're unfamiliar, video relay service is basically a service for the deaf, so they can essentially use the phone. They dial 
to an operator on a monitor and the uh, interpreter on the monitor is uh, wearing a headset. So they dial the number that the deaf person is trying to reach. And so they interpret for them. And so basically this person was, I mean, he used all types of scheme, but in essence, he was hiring deaf people to make calls that weren't really real. They were just calls so that he could get paid by the government by the minute because VRS is subsidized by the government, essentially. And so I was like, yeah, that's a pretty cool thing to center a novel around, even though it became about a lot more than that. And so I just started interviewing my dad. I, I put a tape recorder out and I, I interviewed him for hours, I think like three or four sessions of like hours. And I just learned a lot about it. And then, uh, and so I wrote a first draft and it was really centered on the idea of organized crime backing this video relay service scheme. But that's kind of where I realized that I didn't feel like that was enough. I guess in retrospect, I can kind of see that I either had to make it more pulpy, which is impossible for me. I can't really write in a sort of, I guess, mainstream way. <laughs> <laughs> that's not really what I do. There just wasn't enough existential drama there. And so that's when I get, went back and I wrote this huge draft. I mean, like almost, like almost a quarter million words, like a massive book. And I threw the entire thing out. And I just started again. And I started with Benison. And I took from my experience with sports when I was a kid and how I was really good. And, and then it started basically experiencing like panic attacks as I got older and like severe anxiety and like couldn't play the way I wanted to anymore. And so I infused that into his character being the son of this, you know, uh, video relay service fraudster. And then that kind of led me to like, it kind of just grew from there. It was kind of like, okay, well, if there's going to be this organized crime element, then if Benison's dad's arrested and the threat of him like, you know, talking on some of these kingpins is there, then there should be some sort of pressure. And that's where the idea of Peter came in and, uh, and, and Julia, especially with her dad, Johnny Rossiti. And then Peter and Julia's characters just took a life of their own. I just kept writing into them, I guess is the best way I can put it. You just walked through kind of the thought process on coming up with a story. How long did that process take as far as like the actual core story itself? And at what point did you move to the outline phase? And when you were coming up with those ideas, were you writing them down? Walk us through those early stages as you developed the idea into kind of a more structured outline. It was really sloppy. I guess I would outline things and then I would start writing. But, you know, I, I think the only way you can stay faithful completely to an outline is if you really are working on a more commercial, maybe like mass paperbackish sort of book. I think a lot of like literary fiction comes from an inspiration that happens in time. I don't think it's really possible to be like epiphanic or, or spontaneous if you're too rigid about the practice. So like I'd write an outline and then I would start writing and then I would come up with new ideas and then I would have to change the outline. Um, and that's kind of how it worked throughout the process. But it was a lot more messy than that. It wasn't, you know, a, a lot of it is just you have a routine, but it's constantly in flux. And yeah, I mean, I wish I wish I had something more concrete to give you, but that's really how it is. <laughs> There's no dogmatic way to approach this. Every Every writer's got to kind of find their own path, you know. Did you work on a particular chapter at a time? Did you do one pass through and then revise and revise and revise linearly? Or was it kind of all over the place? It was more all over the place. <laughs> uh, you know, there were times where I would, go, I, would, I would put it on the shelf. I would say, okay, that's a draft, you know, more or less. But, you know, when I started working on it, 
especially the deeper you get into the novel, the way less linear it becomes. Um, you know, obviously earlier on you're writing more linearly in terms of like how the book starts and finishes, but, but even so, like, you know, I would still move chapters around and yeah, it's almost impossible to describe. When things are that kind of amorphous and kind of always in a state of flux, how do you get closer to a point where you feel like things are kind of connecting and you're getting closer to a more finished place? That's really hard to answer because I don't think any writer feels like it's really just done. I think you get to a point where there's a combination of you're kind of sick of it and you're also like, this is the best I can do. Like, I, like technically, yes, I could keep just like putting this on the shelf and coming back to it. But at some point, you just kind of instinctively or, you know, viscerally know that it's over. And it's a lot different. I think the way I knew this is because like, I think there are some people like I, I've experienced this myself, you know, I'll finish a draft of a chapter or let's say, you know, the short story I'm working on now and I'll send it to someone. And like, there's a part of me that's like, Oh, maybe this is close to done. But deep down inside, I'm, I know that's complete BS. Like it's not even close to done, you know? So I, I worked on Emerald city for six years. So, you know, I, I sent it to people to read, probably five or six different drafts. And so that's a totally different level of being like, yeah, this is it. You know, uh, like I have done everything that I can. And and then combining that with the fact that like, I'm no longer really enjoying this at all. <laughs> <laughs> that That's how it works for me, you know? And that's how, like, that's why I feel good about what it is. I think it represents like the absolute best I could do at this point in my life. And I don't think there's really anything... You know, like I, I, I can I can open the book at any point and say, oh, I would definitely change this now, you know, but I don't feel like any regret. Like I totally did everything that I could. So that combined with the fact that it, I no longer yearned to step inside that world anymore. That's basically how I knew I was done. Tell us about the editing process. You are an editor yourself, but I believe you had mentioned that there was an editor for this book. What did the editing process look like? Did you go back and forth with them? Yeah, um, it was really good. I, I was basically just open to whatever suggestions that were given to me. Uh, you know, there was a developmental editing process and then a copy editing process. So obviously the former one's going to be a little bit more, I guess, uh, touch and go in terms of like, okay, as I was going through with him, I was like, okay, am I going to run into, is he going to run into anything that's kind of going to require drastic altering of the book? You know, right. that's what you kind of worry about. Um, and that, that really wasn't the case. It was, uh, I don't know, it was in pretty good shape by that time. So did it take work? Yeah, I mean, we, we, the developmental edits probably lasted maybe three months or something like that. But uh, yeah, at least for me, I think maybe because it had gone under, undergone so much work, maybe that's why the process was somewhat painless for me. But at least that's, that's the way it looks in retrospect. I was kind of so wasted by that point that I was like a robot. <laughs> <laughs> I was just getting it done. Um, but the copy editing part was also was basically like, it was almost like the race was finished and I was just catching my breath. It was just like, okay, there's an error here. Fix this. So yeah, the, the real editing, I would say, took place before that even, before the professional editing really even started. It was, it was more me constantly going through it and constantly taking other people's suggestions and constantly thinking things over once, twice, three, four times, you know. 
Is there a particular part of the writing process that you feel the most strongly about or that you enjoy the most, whether that's dialogue, description, world building, that kind of stuff? Would you say you have a strength or would you say it's important to obviously have all of those? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm the right person to ask (laughs) about my own strengths. Um, I've been told my dialogue is really natural, so I'll I'll stick with that. But, uh, you know, because my prose itself is like very polarizing. Uh, My language isn't very easy to read. So, so, you know, some people really enjoy like a challenge um, or or don't see it really as a challenge. They just see it as kind of like, you know, lyrical or pyrotechnic or whatever. Um, And some people don't like that in their books. You know, I don't know. Like, I, I, I would like to think that language is a strength of mine, but I think more ubiquitously people have said that my dialogue is really organic. How do you come up with a title? And at what point do you feel like you need to make that decision? Did you always know you wanted to call this book Emerald City? And kind of at what point did you have to make that call? No, uh, actually, my friend Jared Pollan, who I went to grad school with, he thought of the title. Um, I was going to call it Antinamine. Antinamine is this like kind of alluded to-ish, like preternatural-ish plant in the novel that formerly had a very prominent role and like by its last draft had a far reduced role in the book. And it it comes from the word antinomy, which is basically a fancy word for paradox in a certain sense. But I won't bore you with the <laughs> with the uh, etymology of that. But um, but yeah. So I was calling it that for a really long time, and a lot of people were kind of like they were tepid on that. It, you know, it's it's pretty obscure. No one knows what antinomy means, so of course no one knows what antinomy means. So I knew I didn't really want to call it that. So yeah, I got Jared said, why don't you call it Emerald City? It's set in Seattle, which they call the Emerald City. Um, it's got this chimeric, you know, even antinomine itself um, and, and kind of just the way, you know, the, the addiction elements in the novel and just organized crime. It's, it's a bunch of people and how people are is we're always chasing after something, you know, and that's what chimera really means is kind of like wishing for something that doesn't really exist. It's this idea of like permanent happiness or contentment or finally reaching this state or like this feeling. And, you know, that's also kind of what comes back from the Wizard of Oz is like when we meet Oz, that's what Oz is. Oz is a, is a chimera. So when he suggested that, I was like, yeah, that's it. That's, that's, a, that's a great title. You mentioned the title. What about the cover, especially from having your own publishing company? You have to think about the marketing side of things. What's going to draw people's eye? How did you make the decision to choose the cover? How did you find the person that you hired to do the cover? Yeah, so that's kind of where it, it comes back to our connections we had in the literary industry uh, yeah, and, and just like literary people in general through the reading series um, when we started the publishing company. So Olivia Croom obviously designed the book, but... Uh, the cover art was done by Sean Ferreira, who's incredibly talented. He's working on the children's book that we're doing right now. And believe it or not, this is my first time ever setting foot in the Library of Congress. And we met there. And this is my first time meeting Sean. And, you know, we bounced a couple of ideas off each other for like 10 minutes. And literally, like 10 or 15 minutes in, I come up with the idea that's on the cover right now. And he just sketches it out. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's beautiful. And then we brought it back and everyone loved it. And uh, it, it was just really that easy. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, that, like, I, and, and, you know, obviously Olivia did a hell of a job with the, the book design itself, you know, like the interior and, and the placement of everything and, you know, the, 
the font for the title and everything. But uh, yeah, it was actually, especially compared to the horror stories I had heard from Olivia in terms of what goes on and bit like, you know, big publishing houses in terms of like the arguments about design and stuff. It was, it was pretty, pretty smooth. You know, my only concern kind of moving forward and I didn't really think about this when we did the book. I don't think I would have changed it anyways, just because I guess that's who I am. But, uh, um, you know, I want to get it into libraries and schools. And I don't know if anyone's going to be a little put off by the drug and gun references on the cover, but I don't think it'll be a big problem. <laughs> uh, romance novels have some pretty risque material on the cover, so it should be okay. And when the book was finally completed and you chose the cover, all that kind of thing, when it came to the promotional side, were you involved in that as much? And having your own publishing company, where's your head at as far as that marketing side of things? And, and obviously, you do want to make money off the book as well. So where's your head at with that? And Yeah, so we, we this is actually where we learned the most in terms of uh, our first book. You know, the, the creation and process of developing and actually putting the book out there went really smoothly. And uh, the publicity side and the marketing side, we, we learned a, a lot more in that area in the sense that, you know, I, I finished my, my first book tour and Katie's kind of like the publicity arm of the, of the company. And she put together this fantastic book tour. Um, and I met a lot of great people and I read to a lot of, I, let, I read it a lot of great reading series and went to these book festivals. And it was a really great experience, but we learned that as a small press, publicity doesn't actually sell as many books as, as you'd hope. I, I, and I heard, actually heard this from an author herself at the Louisiana Book Festival that I was at um, just, I think, two or three weeks ago now, which was amazing. But uh, even she said that you know a lot of mistakes that uh, new authors make is investing more time or money in publicity rather than marketing. Um, so we, we've kind of shifted, shifted our focus there. We're really making sure to get into the whole like digital ads game and figuring out how to, you know, really reach a lot of people just through emails or, you know, placing the book at libraries, like I said, and stuff like that. So yeah, that's the reason we put my book out first is so we could learn a lot of these things. And, uh, so that what, by the time we take on board, um, our next titles will have more information to go on. So yeah, now that we're moving into those arenas, I feel a little bit more confident about, um, you know, cause we, we've sold a few hundred books and that's a good start, but obviously we want to keep growing. So that's where our eye is now. And what about the long run for both dead rabbits and for you as both an author, editor, co-founder, what should we expect to see for both dead rabbits and for you coming up over the next few years? Um, honestly, the books, the, the books that I mentioned, um, David Hollander's book uh, is called Anthropica, and Anthropica is basically a program. In it, his book is about um, a group of people that their group is called Exit Strategy, and basically they're trying to end humanity. You know, kind of like you hear about anti-natalists out there. <laughs> they're kind of related to that movement. Um, they think mankind should come to an end, and you know. I mean, to even begin to describe what this novel is, it's already kind of <laughs> making my head spin. But basically, one of the aspects of the book is this computer program, Anthropica, which basically has figured out that the resources in the world that are being used far supersede what are actually there. So there's something off about the whole thing, about like our reality. Yeah, I don't know. And so those two parts that I kind of explained are two of many parts of the novel. Um, and I'm, I don't have enough time to link them. But uh, 
I'll also just say that there's this uh, character, that uh, this robot character, Fexo, that's literally the funniest character I've ever read in any book in my life. But yeah, his, his book is incredible. Um, so we're really excited about that. We're really excited about Annie's book. She's got um, a collection of essays about her experience with uh, discovering her sexuality and coming out. And she's just super funny um, and, and such a just natural born uh, sentence writer. She's, kind of, she's a comedian too, and she kind of just started writing. She's, she's a wonderkin, prodigy-esque sort of, sort of person. But um, she read a Dead Rabbits. She read an essay she had written. I was like, wow. Like I, I invited her on to our podcast, and that was kind of just a, a way to rope her into writing a book for us. <laughs> and then we got the children's book, which basically is a book about teaching rhythm and music. And then we have Katie's book. Katie's going to put her novel out with us. Uh, her book's called Sunny. And it's, it's about, it, it's kind of a little auto fictive. Um, and it's about her, her main character, but it's not her, um, her, her main character is named uh, Sunday and they call her Sunny. And she's a really troubled kid with parents that are going through a really hard time. Her mom's uh, in rehab at the start of the novel. And um, it kind of ties into this PI who's tracking her. And it's a really like dark rye novel. Um, and then we're in talks with one more person, a book that we're really excited about and hoping to acquire, but um, kind of really not at liberty to talk more about that now. But that's really where we're at. We're, we're focused on the books and how we're going to get them out there. Brian, are you ready for what we call a series of seemingly random questions? Yes. If you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose, which restaurant, and why? I would take James Baldwin to... Uh, an integrated restaurant in the South and show him that the world has improved at least marginally. <laughs> what would you uh, order for the menu? Um, I would do what I always do. Uh, I would give the waiter... Uh, what would I order for him or, or for me? For both. For both? I would give the, I would give the waiter two options and, and, and tell them to pick one and bring it to me. <laughs> My next question, if you could suggest a question that we ask one of our next writer guests, what would you ask and why? Ooh. I, I, I mean, if it was me, I would ask, why did you break up with your first significant other? And what is their name? <laughs> so what I normally do is then flip that question on you. You can or cannot choose to answer that question. Uh, I broke up with Laura because it wasn't, it wasn't working. <laughs> the next question, if you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to those writers who are listening right now, who have been listening to your interview and want to know what's the one thing you would suggest, what would you say? I would say I would go back to what I said about writing. Uh, I mean, whatever you're doing, I, I would just say don't do it to attain some sort of material ends but you know that's just me i also think that that might work for some people uh but yeah that's that's my that's my main advice it you got to do it for the love of the game yeah and you suggest that for those writers who you would want to work with on your publishing company as well you want them to be focused on the love as opposed to some sort of marketing ends or well you know what honestly I wouldn't say that for ours because, you know, part of our mission statement is that we're the difference between us and, and maybe a big time publishing company is that 
you know, unlike books that get mid-listed at big companies, they get sort of uh, ostensible uh, or, you know, their, their publicity and marketing gets paid lip service and then the books kind of fall by the wayside. And we're not really about that. So despite the fact that I do it because I love it, I would say that our writers should not expect that they should just do it because they love it. They should expect something from, from, with it, from their books, something to happen. Last question. Drum roll. Harry, please hand me the envelope. I've been handed an envelope and I'm opening it. All right. The last question is, did you have fun today on this podcast? Yes. I love the straightforward answer. We did as well. Before we go, I feel like you have a lot to plug. Obviously, there's Dead Rabbits, there's Emerald City, there's some upcoming books, and you have a podcast as well, which we haven't talked about. Did you want to shout out everything out that people should uh, check out? Yeah. Um, if you want to learn more about us, just go to deadrabbitsbooks.com. Um, and yeah, you can, you can buy my novel there, Emerald City, on the site. Uh, you can also get it on Amazon. Um, you can check us out on Twitter at deadrabbitsbks uh, or on Facebook at deadrabbits. And uh, yeah, just keep looking out for the titles that we're going to come out with, especially in May with David's book. That's going to be it's going to be really great. And the podcast uh, you can find on Spotify or pretty much any of the real podcast mediums, really. But yeah, it's it's just called the Dead Rabbits Podcast. And yeah, we have a pretty decent following, so we're doing something right, I guess. So yeah, check us out. Well, thank you, Brian. Congrats on everything, the book, and obviously uh, Dead Rabbits. We're really excited to see what's coming up. We really appreciate you being on the podcast, talking about your process, and hearing your insights. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate uh, you guys having me on. Of course. Thank you, Brian, and thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.